Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, September 14th, 2020. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And Senior Writer Christine Rosen, whose piece, uh, lead cover article for the October issue of Commentary, You Will Be Reeducated, we will be discussing at length on this podcast. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. But before we get to Christine's piece, I wanted to talk about uh, an interesting example of um, what some might call epistemic closure uh, produced by the New York Times in its article on the battleground state polling that it has now uh published or published on Saturday morning uh, about Wisconsin, Minnesota, North Carolina, Arizona, and another state I can't quite pull up in my brain at the moment. What was interesting about this is that the article purported to say that Trump's Donald Trump's efforts to make a case to the American people and to voters in these states that the Antifa violence and the unrest uh, are reasons why he should be voted for and why people should pull away from uh, Joe Biden uh, weren't working. And in fact, I am not sure that that's what the polling said at all. Uh, And from the language of the Times' own coverage of the event uh, and of the polling uh, suggested that in fact Biden's uh, Trump's efforts to tag Biden with these problems are in fact beginning to bite a little bit. And here's a quote from the article in Wisconsin, Mr. Biden received 48% support compared with 43% for Trump. That's a significant drop off from June when a time Siena poll showed Mr. Biden ahead by 11 points. Nearly all of the narrowing came as a result of Mr. Trump's recovering support from voters to the right of center, some of whom had expressed feelings of disillusionment in the earlier poll amid the ravages of the pandemic and a major wave of racial justice protests. So uh, he was he's narrowed in the poll over two months from 11 to 4, Uh, In June, people were expressing discontent with him over his handling of the pandemic and protests. And now in September, uh, there's been a seven-point swing in his favor in in their own polling. And somehow, the Times then ends up in this article characterizing their findings as suggesting that Trump's attacks on Antifa and, uh, and support for law and order are having no effect. Uh, why would they do this? Because they're afraid of their readers. They're afraid of the 6 million people now who are reading them online, most of whom uh, it would appear, given the surge in success of the times in the Trump era, are very eager to hear news about how Trump is terrible and how everything is going their way. And are... uh, And they understand that if they report otherwise, this is my supposition, or they understand that if they themselves start believing otherwise, not only will their readers get depressed, but they will get depressed. 
Now, I'm not saying, by the way, that polling that shows Biden is ahead in all these places isn't good for Biden. It is. It, uh, but my point is that what you try to register when you report on polls and look at polls is the change from previous polling. Uh, it's a snapshot in time. So you want to say, well, what does the snapshot in time look like relative to the last snapshot in time? And if, for, for example, in the bellwether state of this election, which is Wisconsin, Trump has moved from 11 to 4 uh, after two months of rioting uh, and then the Kenosha riots that began uh, the last week of August. I don't know. Uh, I think that there's a lot of evidence to suggest that things are really beginning to bite for Trump and uh, liberals don't want to hear it. And they're, and so they are basically refusing to report on it. I agree. And I think that... Um... The, the percentage of people who are um, moving to Trump because of this is, is likely um, appreciably greater than even that indicates because it's one thing to be a shy Trump voter. Um, it's a whole other thing to be a shy revolution disapprover. Um, that, is even, that is even a scarier position to be in publicly. Um, and I think there's another reason for the Times not framing this accurately, which is that it shows that this social justice justice movement is failing in a sense because it, it is turning people off. A, a, a good number of people are seeing this and they are repulsed. Right. So, I mean, that's a, that's a perfectly good supposition. Also, you could just have the natural narrowing effect, which is that people don't like him, they don't like him, they don't like him, but as they get closer and closer to having to decide whether or not they're going to vote for him, they uh, are deciding to vote for him or go back, you know, go go home to him or whatever. And, of course, he won uh, Wisconsin by a tiny sliver of, uh, you know, half a point or something like that. And so the fact that he was down 11 give, gave him a, gives him a lot of room to make up in, in Wisconsin. But it's not just in Wisconsin that he's narrowing. Most of these polls, the Times state polls, showed Trump's, uh, Biden's margin smaller than it was before. And so well, that, yeah. And events are not going to, aren't helping move things back in Biden's direction, right? I mean, the violence over this this past weekend alone uh, two or three weeks from now is going to also turn up in polls. And there's a lot of cynicism on the part of voters who are sick and tired of hearing about mostly peaceful protests, but then turning on their television and not just in places like Chicago and DC and New York and LA, but now in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, um, you know, smaller places, which did happen in Kenosha, it is continuing around the country. Uh, violence that is, that is loosely organized by Black Lives Matter types in response to, in the case of Lancaster, a completely legitimate use of force by the police in a, in a very volatile situation. Um, and it doesn't matter the circumstances. The, the protesting and the violence usually begins before anything is released, including the police body cam footage. And even once body cam footage is released, the riots continue. So there's there, there's a sense on the part of kind of a rational person looking at these situations that, well, wait a minute, is this really about police. <laughs> and I think more and more people are starting to question the motivations of a movement that responds to every single incident with the same response and the same kind of disorder and chaos uh, without ever looking at the facts and without ever, you know, thinking through the consequences of their actions. 
Well, we also have the we also have the uh, the horrifying event in in Los Angeles where right. someone someone uh, shot cops point blank, you know, uh, ambushed them, shot them, uh, and then according to reports, uh, the cops were transported to a hospital, and Black Lives Matter protesters showed up to try to block the ambulance from or to do what they could to. What were they chanting? Let let them die. They were saying, "We hope they die." And I watched the live stream because you know a lot of rumors get started on social media. I watched uh, all the footage that was out there, and it was horrifying, horrifying. And I don't care if it's a very small group of people. They identified themselves as protesters, and they were wishing death on two officers who had been uh, uh, the target of an attempted assassination. Right, and this is, I think, the fourth or fifth or sixth. Uh, event of cops being um, shot at simply for being cops, uh, and and there is there is no rhyme or reason to it. I mean, there's no uh, it, you know there's no uh, it's it's everywhere. It's across the country in different cities, in Brooklyn, and various other places, Los Angeles, Brooklyn, and um, you know I think we made the mistake, and others have made the mistake of thinking that because the Kenosha riots and various other things didn't immediately register against Biden or for Trump, that uh, nothing was happening, that uh, things weren't, that uh, the public had basically decided that it was largely on the side of the uh, uh, change and that uh, they weren't going to blame Biden for it or they weren't going to support Trump. And I think if these polls aren't outliers, what they suggest is that this is a simmering cauldron, not a, an overflowing cauldron. And that unless the violence relents between now and November, if Trump keeps hitting this message over and over and over again, it is going to have the intended effect that he wishes it to have. And because the mainstream media are so uh, allergic to the message, they are going to try to report on everything that suggests that the public is feeling the other way, even though doing this at this moment is actually harmful to the result that they wish to happen. Because what they should be doing is pressuring Biden to be as tough on this as he possibly can to minimize the damage to himself. But, you know, it's very hard for liberal Democrats to get out of their own bubble and hear the real voice of the undecided voter. And and can I just point out something that a huge misstep that I think will, in retrospect, be be seen as such by the Biden campaign, sending Kamala Harris to go meet Jacob Blake's family was a big mistake for a number of reasons. Um, because now is she going to go meet uh, the the family of the the guy in Lancaster who was who was shot by police as well? Because in both of those situations, what prompted the police presence was a domestic violence call. A vulnerable woman in a household felt her life was at risk by a male partner. And you've got Kamala Harris going to the you know, going to sort of, you know, uh, the Jacob Blake family and calling them wonderful people and whatnot. What about, is she going to go visit the families of these officers shot in LA? Is she going to go? I mean, they, they've set a precedent here, which gives tacit approval to a movement whose rhetoric is leading to quite violent action. Not always, but, but it is there. It's part of that movement now. And I think more Americans are starting to identify it with Black Lives Matter 
and seeing uh, the goals of that movement as something other than a kind of nice, you know, warm and fuzzy feeling that we should all get along and we should, you know, have some sort of law enforcement reform. I mean, I do think that the tone is shifting, but for those of us who've been following Black Lives Matter since the beginning, this has always been the tone of Black Lives Matter. It's just been given this code, this veneer of respectability by people like the Biden campaign. And those that that's going to be a problem for them in the next few months if the violence continues, which obviously we all hope it doesn't. But the signs are not optimistic for that to happen. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, because I always wonder to what extent the, um, the that story gets out. Um, first of all, you know, the, the, the idea that, um, that Black Lives Matter is, um, as radical as it in fact is. Um, and also things like, um, Kamala's visit, which, which the mainstream media didn't really, there was, there wasn't really much criticism. There wasn't, as far as I can see, there wasn't any, it it was, you know, it it only came from, um, conservative and right-wing, uh, precincts on social media and, and um, conservative media. But it's amazing to me because it seems that the story in this case gets out on its own to some, to some extent. It can't not at, when there is um, violent incident after violent incident. That, that sort of no, no degree of framing it um, changes, can change the public perception for that long. And, you know... I think just in general, um, uh, everyone has gotten so spun up over the last two weeks over Woodward and, and, and the Atlantic and various, you know, new hits on Trump and all of that, um, that uh, the, the, the outrage level at Trump uh, in the mainstream media is, is rising to 2016 level. Not that it's not beyond 2016, but it's rising to such a point that uh, it is becoming unimaginable to people who dislike Trump that anyone in the country could possibly want to vote for him. And they cannot hear, they cannot bear to hear that uh, there may be a problem with the way Biden is framing this race. And maybe they need to hear it because they're the only ones who can put pressure on Biden sufficient to make him uh, alter or amend his 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 course if he really needs to alter or amend his course. It's just an interesting set of political circumstances. Uh, Biden obviously has gotten what he's gotten over the last 17 months or something like that by uh, not being much of anything uh, or sort of going along with whatever the most basic consensus is in his coalition and in his party, but not stirring the, not trying to get out ahead of anything, not stirring the pot, not, you know, making pointed attacks, even on Trump, whatever, nothing. And uh, the rubber is meeting the road because the country's in a crisis that isn't just the COVID crisis. And, uh, and, and he uh, is not speaking out adequately on the matter. I, I'm particularly struck by, the utter uh, crazed rage about this Trump rally in Nevada, uh, where the governor, Sisolak, like is saying, look at Donald Trump, he's killing people, he's having a rally, this is so awful, they're all there, they're not wearing masks, it's horrible, it's terrible. 
This is the guy who opened the casinos in his state. And uh, I saw footage last night, people on the Vegas Strip. No one's wearing masks. And by the way, they're outdoors. I mean, this they wanted they weren't outdoors in the in the in the in the Henderson rally. Um but I mean fine, so attack Trump all you like, then you better close the casinos. Like you can't that's where the cognitive dissonance starts starts being the road. And if you're a certain type of voter in a place like Nevada who might be inclined to vote for Trump and and you are told he's doing all these terrible things, don't look at what we do. You look what he's doing, but don't look at what we do. You're not allowed to look at what we do, but you have to focus on him. Um, that's where not, it's not where you get the shy Trump voter or the voters afraid to tell pollsters things. You just get the you're full of crap. You're all just full of crap. The media is full of crap, and these Democratic politicians attacking Trump are full of crap. That doesn't mean that the people who say say that are going to end up voting for Trump. But it's better for Trump than the alternative, which is that he's the only one who's full of crap. Um. I'm not saying that the rally was a good idea or a bad idea. I, I, I don't really understand why he did it, actually. Uh, uh, I know they think that maybe they have a shot in Nevada. It seems like he's more he would be more wiser to go shore up places that he won uh, in and, and not, do, not do what he's doing in stupid ways, like having a rally that leads him to get questioned about it. But I, but I don't know. Uh, Noah, I just wonder what. A, yeah, hi. hi. <laughs> I just wonder what a a Biden campaign switching gears and addressing this in the way you think he should would look like. Because it strikes me that he's in some sort of a trap. Um, you, you you mentioned this over the weekend, John, and I thought it was pretty astute that if this changes minds, it will do so cumulatively, in part because any whenever you're ready to receive this message around the violence, there's a headline for you because it happens every day. Uh, and that seems like a pretty, uh, pretty fair prediction. And I do think that the, the, the attack on the police in Los Angeles is qualitatively distinct from the kind of rioting that we've seen. Um, the Dallas event in 2016 was, I think, a pretty underrated or at least underexplored factor in the 2016 race. Well, you should um, talk about what that was. Uh, for anybody who doesn't remember, it was a coordinated assault by a, uh, a militant, radicalized uh, BLM supporter who took a, uh, a sniper rifle and started targeting Dallas police officers and killed several of them. I think it was almost six, right? Six, something like that, um, before he was taken out with a remote explosive device. And um, that was that was a real wake-up call that sort of passed into the ether because it was, I think, around the conventions or before the conventions, and then it just became background radiation. But that background radiation has, an, has a deleterious effect over long periods of exposure. Um, and that's maybe what we're getting into now. But for Biden, what would, what would changing tack look like? Because he came out over the weekend immediately after this attack and addressed it head on and said, all violence is terrible. And, you know, Twitter being Twitter, which reaches for the most tendentious approach to any issue possible, uh, immediately attacked him from all sides of the issue. It was a mealy mouth statement for the right. And for the left, it was um, giving undue credence or undue attention to an outlier event. And I wonder who, if that message, which appeals to normal human beings who find violence atrocious and hear somebody condemning violence and say, oh, that's okay. 
um, whether that really has the appropriate effect or does the public read that as, as Twitter did, being either insufficient to the moment or an undue concession to your political adversaries and what tonal, what tone he can strike that would appeal to, to the voters who are unnerved by this moment and who are maybe just beginning to tune into it and say, okay, well, this is now Kenosha and Lancaster and my town, and this is coming for me now. How can he address those concerns without, without creating a bad news cycle for himself? He needs to go meet with cops. He needs to stand next to some law enforcement officers and say, these men and women have, we have their back. They are doing a very tough job. Every day they put on their uniform, they put their own lives at risk to protect others. And it is unconscionable that they be the target of this kind of rhetoric or violence. That's what he should do. Okay, so that to me also strikes me as insufficient, um, in part because it's a positive message and what's needed now is a negative message. What's needed now is to identify these individuals who are being the problem and call them out and say who they are and what they are and why we're against it. Now, the way to do that, according to people like Josh Barrow, who I kind of agree with in this sense, is not to have a sister soldier moment in the form of talking about BLM supporters, because that's too too fraught for the left. What you could do is talk about these um, privileged uh, white affluent, overeducated people who are throwing Molotov cocktails at police officers and then going back to work at the law firm that they work at. Um, and that seems like an easy one. And that strikes me as the right way to do it, because you wouldn't offend anybody in your coalition by doing that, right? Everybody, nobody has a soft spot. That's a very, that is a very sister soldier thing, because remember, it is. the thing about sister soldier is she was a nobody. She was a total nobody. She was a she was a rapper with no audience, and you know, like she had sold I don't know fourteen thousand records uh, at the time that, uh, that 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 Clinton went after her because she said you know white people should all die or she said something totally bananas, and 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 so he 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 targeted it because. <laughs> He was punching down like something fierce, like he wasn't going after, uh, you know, NWA or or public enemy or something like that. He was going after an unsuccessful fourth rate rapper. Yeah. So somebody with no constituency, which is who these the people who we're talking about really are. I mean, they're okay, but, just but the- radicalized, bored, um, comfortable people who are obsessed with bloodlust. Um, and that seems like a really easy person to throw over the side of the boat. I think Noah's absolutely right that that's precisely as a matter of political strategy what Biden should do. My concern is 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 um, that from a moral standpoint, what that actually the tacit message to Black Lives Matter and particularly its radical wing is that I'm you're, you're safe. You're safe. We're not gonna we're not actually gonna challenge the thing that leads people to go pick up a gun and shoot cops in cold blood. And that is what concerns me long term in a way that, you know, Sister Soldier and rap you could cordon off as part of the culture and not deal with. But this is starting to have broader effects that are violent and dangerous for everyone. And that's the part where I think him doing that in the short term makes political sense, but as a matter of of uh kind of being a political leader is bad leadership. Well, the other question that is raised by this is if, if this really, if people could look at this, you know, coolly, people who want Biden to win, and they can look at it and see the threat rather than try to narcotize themselves, do they provide the kind of 
implicit support for Biden to go at the people he needs to go at to try to pull back from or to at least neutralize the damage that they might be doing to his electoral chances, particularly in the, you know, in the three upper Midwestern states. Um, that's where the mainstream media and like elite opinion have to come in to help him. And of course, and this is where we can maybe start talking about Christine's piece. It is uniquely difficult at this moment for them to do so because culturally the messages that are being imparted about the revolutionary ideas that have taken this country by storm, uh, since May, uh, there is no counterweight whatsoever in the culture outside of politics. And this is a good moment to introduce uh, Christine Rosen's uh, October lead article in Commentary Magazine, available now at commentarymagazine.com. You will be re-educated, which posits that we are living in a moment in which there is only one possible set of ideas that one can look at the United States, the only one prism you can look at the United States through. And this will be enforced by a regime that can only be called a re-education regime in which you were, you were not allowed to think uh, any differently from uh, a, a, a enforced orthodoxy that says that America is systemically racist and that you as a white person uh, are part of the problem, not part of the solution. And until you are openly willing to acknowledge and kowtow and declare yourself uh, a villain, uh, you are a villain anyway. Christine, can you elaborate? Sure. I, uh, um, what sparked my uh, curiosity about this particular moment was, you know, conservatives have for a long time worried about what I thought of as miseducation, right? The kind of ideological theories that had infected a lot of academia, the efforts to sort of in insist on, you know, diversity and sexual harassment training, which we actually know from research is often counterproductive and not, not successful in, in teaching people to behave better. And these are kind of, you know, at, at a, at a baseline level, they've always, they've been around for, you know, decades and we've kind of, we're cranky about them and we critique them as we should, but, but it, what shifted this spring was the tone and the techniques um, of this effort to re-educate because it's not any more about adding to what's already there. It's about demolishing what's there because it's considered systemically racist and building a new regime on uh, basically, broadly speaking, is called anti-racism. Um, Ibram X. Kendi is its its most um, uh, prominent avatar, but it's it's all over the place. There are all kinds of books that talk about this. And so I started looking first at education because a lot of my friends were forwarding me emails this summer from their private and public institutions that were talking about totally revamping how they teach everything in school because of systemic racism. And we're going to have anti-racist this and anti-racist that. I'm like, hmm, wow, well, that's just a reaction. It's, it's not going to spread. But then I started seeing, uh, you know, the the actually one of the more stunning moments was a was a high school teacher who, during a virtual public assembly in June, said that all lives matter, and the reaction to that was was so brutal. He was threatened with, you know, being fired, and he had to issue a public apology that read like a forced confession. And I include parts of it in the 
in the piece and, and people should read it. And that stunned me because here was someone who was saying something that is not innocuous to say that we should value all human life and treat everyone with dignity is precisely what the civil rights movement uh, and Martin Luther King Jr. in particular has long argued. That is no longer considered acceptable. In fact, by Ibram Kendi, anti-racist standards, that itself is a racist microaggression. To call yourself a colorblind person who tries to see human dignity and human value in every life makes you racist. That is now the mode that we're operating in. And it has not infected everything, but you can see the tentacles spreading and spreading rapidly. Um, And there are a lot of people who have very enthusiastically made themselves fellow travelers in this. The Times covered some of the students, high school students, who were very eagerly reporting on racist behaviors of their peers. Um, there's a there's a lot. The enforcement mechanism is is coming from you know the calls coming from inside the house here. People are very eager to call out other people's perceived misbehavior and racism. But for me, the the, the really crucial point is this switch from color blindness to racial equity. That is very important for people to understand. Those are two completely different ways of viewing our fellow mankind and viewing us, our society. And the latter, the one, the moment that we're in now, which embraces racial equity as the only goal, um, is dangerous for a number of reasons. So that's kind of a broad uh, thing. And then it's just full of examples. And for each example that I include in the piece, there were multiple other examples that wouldn't fit. Once you start... Uh, studying what the end goal of this movement is, it's very concerning. And I think that's why a lot of conservatives were upset about things like the 1619 Project, because that was a kind of perfect distillation of the motivation here. Repeal and replace. Repeal the old story about our founding and the principles on which that founding is it was, was made and replace it with a different story uh, and with a very clear villain, um, anyone with white skin. And it is that stark. It is that starkly presented when you start looking at the literature, which I read quite a bit of. <laughs> one, yeah. one thing that's important to note and that, you know, Christine, is that this didn't happen overnight. It, fe- it feels like it did. Right. But uh, this assault on color blindness as being itself a form of racial discrimination because it it precludes positive discrimination um, is something that has been on the fringes of this moment or this movement rather for at least four years, probably more than that, but I've been aware of it for at least four years. And it's assumed its place within this uh, ideological uh, hierarchy now, uh, only as a result of a lot of groundwork, a lot of spade work that's been done over the course of many years um, on the fringes. One of the things that you write in this piece that I thought is really important to make note of because it dovetails with Abe's revolution piece is near the end where you're discussing this book, Dismantling Racism, a workbook for social change, um, in which the authors note that among the, quote, characteristics of white supremacy culture are things like, quote, worship of the written word, individualism, and objectivity. And you go down further and talk about how this uh, this uh, public, this charter school system, rather, um, removed its slogan, which was work hard and be nice, because hard work is now a, a, a notion that passively uh, supports ongoing efforts to pacify and control black and brown bodies. Um, this is the sort of thing that you have to attack as viciously and as with as much energy as you can summon as early as possible. Every Whenever it rears its head, it must be destroyed because it will very quickly uh, subsume our culture, our individual individualistic culture that rewards uh, work and, and enterprise 
and anathematize it because all of a sudden colorblindness is now racism and tomorrow it'll be work is racism. Yeah. You know, and the difference in, um, um, Christine, as you say, miseducation and reeducation, um, that you, the, the difference that you point to and the one that knows just discussing about, you know, how colorblindness is, is now an indication of, of racism. Um, this also points to a larger, um, underlying difference and, and ideolo- ideological shift in the country, which is that um, it, the, if the radical left and if the, the accusation against the U.S. used to be the criticism that the U.S. wasn't living up to its own ideals, that was, in a sense, a grudging um, um, show of respect for those ideals um, because you were criticizing the country um, by the light of its own goals and aims. This is saying that, that, that um, those aims, that, that goal itself is illegitimate and, and needs to be rethought. That's right. And I think that um, you see that in a lot of the rhetoric, you see that in the trickle down way in which um, kind of academic, radical academic theories that most people would never come across in their daily lives are now in their really in their HR briefing. They will they will find them in their That's HR right. briefings. And these are these are not these are compulsory in many cases. The most uh, outrageous, although, um, is now it sounds like it, it is temporarily on hold because uh, Donald Trump has decreed that critical race theory shouldn't be used in, as an education tool in, in the federal government. The Sandia National Laboratories, the country's one of the country's premier nuclear uh, research facilities, had retraining and re-education classes for white men, where white men were taught about all of their oppressive uh, behavior. And this is another part of it that I think people will find when they have to sit in these sessions themselves or their children are meant to sit in them. They are not, it's not enough to just show up and listen with an open mind. That is still racist. You have to confess your own sin. And the confessional aspect of this is, I think, uh, you know, as, as Abe pointed out in his piece, that's the revolutionary piece that is becoming mainstreamed in a way that's very worrisome. So the other example that I stumbled across was a, a low, a, a private school. We, I think we mentioned this on the, on the podcast, uh, last week, a school where children had to be assessed sort of a pre-assessment before the school year about their own anti-racism. And the questions were all very leading, very propagandistic, um, and they had to attach their name to their answers. And I had a really fascinating discussion with my 14-year-old sons about if the school gave you this quiz, how would you answer? And already what, what shocked me is that they, they understood the ideological motivation of the questionnaire, and they knew exactly the answer they had to give to not get in trouble. That is the kind of self-censorship that we are that's the, the environment we're creating and raising children in and, and imposing on workplaces that concerns me the most. Social media plays a huge role in this now because uh, people, ordinary people can now be compelled to uh, offer this testimony uh, because silence is then considered complicity. So if you're in a social network on Instagram or a social network on Facebook and you do not, and, and a call comes out that you are supposed to support an anti-racism moment or a, you know, or, or a day where you're supposed to put up a black an image instead of a photograph on Instagram or something, and you don't, your fear is that it will be noted that you do not do so. Um, the reason to have these days is precisely to locate and target the people who are absent from them. 
And that is where the cultural revolutionary aspect here comes in, because it, it, this uh, demand that you offer testimony that you uh, is it is also a follow the enforcement mechanism is a cultural shaming mechanism that can also lead to dismissal. I mean, that's the story on campuses and these teachers, this kind of this, um, these uh, craven apologies for people who are not falling in lock, lockstep, who are, it is demanded of them. And it's wise for them to make these apologies because they shouldn't ruin their lives over, you know, not refusing to do some tiny little, you know, accommodation to, uh, to political correctness, like the, the cost benefit analysis for any individual person uh, it, it is obvious. The cost-benefit analysis for the entire society, the closing of free inquiry, the refusal to accept um, uh, a false story about the United States, and the damage that is being done by precisely the things that Noah was citing, this, um, this sort of uh, attack on this notion that, like, hard work, good manners, and, you know, social responsibility um, are somehow kowtowing to white supremacy, the damage that that does to precisely the people who need to hear those messages so that they will be able to live a productive life as adults um, is, 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 uh, is almost hard to uh, quantify, impossible to quantify, I would say. Uh, and Christine, the, well, Abe, you're our, you're, you're uh, local, uh, <laughs> how things are like the cultural revolution in China guy. Um, can you talk about sort of like the the sessions, the you know uh, what were they called? I mean, uh, you think the struggle the, sessions, the struggle, struggle sessions, sessions, yeah, in China, yeah. Well, they range the the gambit. I mean, you know, from just a sort of um, you know plain old intimidation of um, prominent figures and less prominent figures for everything from um, espousing supposedly non revolutionary ideas. Um, to having non-revolutionary art in their home, which was stolen then uh, by the Red Guard. Um, but from that to murder, um, I mean, that was a... So in that sense, you know, um, the Cultural Revolution was um, more... Uh, was significantly more violent and deadly. But the, but the vast majority of the struggle sessions were not um, uh, like, you know, scenes from uh, Clockwork Orange. They, they were they were more like what we see here. Um, and, right. and we and, and, and the stuff and this the stuff that's happened since I, I wrote my piece that we see more and more of, especially on social media, um, where the uh, Black Lives Matter protesters go out to restaurants um, like in D.C. and um, and mob swarm the place. Um, and try to force uh, diners um, who are out, uh, you know, just eating with their friends and family to uh, raise their fist um, in a salute to to Black Lives Matter, to show their uh, sympathy with the cause, to repeat the chants that that they want them to repeat, and get in their face and 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 toss the toss over the the, the tabletop. Um, and whatnot. That 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 stuff is that is that is total, you know, uh, uh, red guard action. And I think one of the things that people should be aware of, because we now hear presidential candidates like Joe Biden and Kamala Harris using these phrases all the time, is that the the work that phrases like systemic racism are doing. Because one of the things that people like Ibram Kendi and the anti-racism crowd want to see happen 
is a downplaying of individual responsibility, cultural explanations for behavior, any of the things that honestly a lot of a lot of the most um, prominent and interesting black scholars and black uh, uh, civil rights activists in in our history have pointed to as part of the reason uh, that things need to change. Because as Abe said earlier, holding up ideals that the country wasn't meeting because they were leaving too many people behind. The, the systemic racism crowd wants to take those discussions off the table. So if you read Kendi, he's very specific about saying, you know, if there's poverty and because of uh, systemic racism, we have poverty. So if you go into communities where there's also violence and a kind of glorification of gang culture and misogyny and homophobia, none of those things practiced by anyone who practices them is their fault. They do not bear responsibility because they are in a system that is so systemic that individual responsibility doesn't really is not is a racist explanation for that behavior. And that's a big shift that happened quickly, because even um, even people, writers like Ta-Nehisi Coates, you know, 10 years ago, were criticizing uh, the behavior of African-American communities where that that kind of conduct was taking place. Barack Obama offered some criticism of the cultural criticism of, you know, certain practices and certain things that were glorified and held up as a an alternative, doing well in school, working hard, you know, being a responsible parent, raising your kids well, all of these things were things that our first black president was emphasizing. That is now considered racist. If you're an anti-racist, to critique any individual behavior in the African-American community is racism. And that Kendi, that shift is shocking and really dangerous. Kendi is, abs- is uh, admirably forthright insofar as he um, is very explicit about what needs to happen which is, in his view, a constitutional amendment that would establish the language of this kind of systemic racism idea and then create, because it is impossible under our current system, create an, a, a, a bureaucracy that is unresponsive to voters, that is, that is completely distinct from what the political will will allow, that would oversee every legislative affair at every level in the country, um, to establish this anti-racism ideology and then oversee the work done by political officials to make sure that they are uh, adhering to these views. It is explicitly anti-democratic insofar as it removes democracy from the process. You need to have this kind of um, bureaucratized totalitarianism. And it is totalitarianism insofar as it requires a certain ideology that must be enforced from the top down to which you must adhere. And it applies to every facet of life. Well, so it's very explicit that yeah. there has to be a totalitarian reform in this country in order to meet his vision. Well, um, well which is valuable. It's valuable that he's willing to say as much out loud. Not everybody is, but those who believe this adhere to that very belief that the, the nation is racist at its core, and there has to be some sort of authoritarian mechanism to extirpate that evil from people's hearts. Well, because because according to them, uh, the system itself. There is no freedom within the system because the system dictates the parameters by which uh, people are, are, are able to act. Therefore, uh, it's a myth that we're a democracy. It's a myth that people have choice because uh, because the racism is, is systemic. And I think, uh, you know, we have, again, an example of how um, people like us, you know, very high elite people, are going to get through this just fine. You know, our kids will go to the 30, 35, 40 top schools. 
they'll they'll go through some training, this and that. No, you know, whatever happened, they'll they'll end up as lawyers, they'll end up as doctors, they'll end up sort of in the, you know, at the at the tops of their professions, living in some version of an American gated community, you know, uh, uh, adhering, living the meritocratic uh, life that is wonderful. It is the denial of the American ideal to everybody else that is the evil. I, I watched uh, a lot of the first day of football yesterday. I don't know if anybody else did, but um, the uh, the degree to which the uh, the hour long pre shows on Fox and CBS were uh, given over to political instruction on Black Lives Matter issues. Uh, was 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 quite startling, and again, very important because obviously CBS and you know networks and every like have have now all joined in on this uh, on this doctrine. Uh, uh, Fox now owned by uh, by Disney and uh, and uh, um, CBS owned by Viacom, and um, this is at a moment at which uh, this is the interesting question, I think. Uh, this is a very critical moment for American sports. Uh, no one's watching baseball. No one's watching the basketball playoffs. No one watched the U.S. Open. And we'll see how football did. Um, uh, the idea that sports is a refuge from uh, the, 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 the everyday uh, horrors of, 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 of over-politicized life is now completely gone. And I think people are voting with their not their feet, their remotes to say, I, I'm just not interested in, in, in getting lectured by these pituitary cases. Um, and, you know, I mean, I'm serious. Like who are these guys? They're all, they're, you know, they're all steroided 22 year olds who know nothing about anything, giving you a little lecture about, uh, you know, about, uh, about uh, systemic racism. Um, a systemic maybe being the first four syllable three what a three or four syllable word they've ever spoken. I mean, I'm I, you know I'm talking about we know who football we know who American football players are, we know who basketball players are, uh, that they are now becoming our moral consciences and, and leaders and guides to 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 our to our bright future. Uh, just gives you an example of how um, <laughs> Trump may win because uh, uh, this culture of lecture and hectoring. And all of that is going to drive everybody insane. There's, this is also Christine, but this, Christine, this is you know part of your point in the in the piece, which is, you know, I, I I get really annoyed when people say that what's happening at the moment isn't new, that it's just another example of what's been happening all along, and you know you're just you're getting excited about this um, un, unduly. But um, as you point out. There is no refuge from this now. I mean, that is that is the difference. This is mandatory, and it's absolutely everywhere. Yeah, and it, I mean, one of the things that's that's surprising to me is how uh, certain uh, modes of persuasion, right? Uh, education and moral persuasion were two uh, of the pillars of the civil rights movement in the 20th century, right? It was like we we need access to all of the opportunities that every every white person is given. And we also need to persuade all those white people that we just, that we are their equal because, you know, in equal in dignity, equal in self-respect, all of these things. And that was successful. And it was shocking to me. I've actually seen defense of this in, in essays on sort of left left leaning um, writers 
who point out when when conservatives are appalled by the example that Abe gave earlier of this, you know, this woman who was besieged by Black Lives Matter people insisting she raise her fist. Some of the response on the left was, well, you have to be disruptive. That's how the civil rights movement made a point. They were disruptive, including in restaurants, totally missing the idea that when they went into a lunch counter and sat peacefully, a process, by the way, for which there was ex- a whole lot of training that they went through. They were basically given training. They, they practiced being shouted at and harassed and horrible things being said to them by their fellow uh, activists so that when they were in that situation, they sat there calmly as a perfect example of dignity and the, and people being disrespected. And now the people who were screaming and yelling at them were the horrible racists. So in those scenarios, I always want to say to the left, well, which one do you think you are? You're the one screaming and yelling at the people sitting having a... So even that kind of weird hall of mirrors effect is lost because moral persuasion is no longer on the list of approved tactics. And that's what concerns me. If education's out the window and moral persuasion is no longer the goal, there's only one other thing you can do, and that is violence. Um, Well, here's what I wonder. And I mean, people like us of a particular political persuasion think that it's really stupid for Democrats to not provide some sort of an alternative here, some way to dissent from this new orthodoxy that isn't supporting Donald Trump, who is his own basket of problems. Um, but do voters actually think that way? I mean, I, we want these, this violence to bite. We want these protests to register politically. Um, but the evidence to support that is relatively thin, not non-existent, but thin. Voters don't maybe necessarily see Joe Biden as a vehicle for this kind of behavior, or at least tacitly accepting of it. Maybe they see him as a bulwark against it. In part because he makes yeah. these milk toasty statements against violence, but at least that's something. I think and that's he's given true. no indication. Yeah. His personal behavior has given no indication that he's uh, that he's supportive of this sort of thing. Quite the opposite. So maybe voters do see Joe Biden as a bulwark against this kind of behavior, and Donald Trump, uh, and and can register their dissatisfaction with this by supporting him rather than just casting a a reluctant ballot for Donald Trump. But you know the, the the best argument for Trump, and this has been the best argument for Trump, whether you agree with it or not, um, is that um, he has the uh, ability and uh, perhaps the fearlessness to call out sort of madness uh, when he sees it, uh, without worrying about um, uh, norms and you know. Uh, um, or, he tells uh, it like it is. He, yeah, he tells it like it is, but also he sort of upsets the apple cart that that clearly needs upsetting, you know. Um, and this is, in that sense, this is one of those cases where, you know, whether or not people like what Joe Biden is sort of saying, mealy-mouthed and, and you know, condemning in, in broad and effective terms, they look at Trump and say, well, at least he's out there saying this is absolute madness and this must stop. Okay, so I think that's true if the election were today. This is the question. If we're seven weeks from the election and there are more cops who are shot in the back of the head and there are more uh, riots when a guy runs at a cop with a knife uh, and, and the cop has to shoot him, and if there are, you know, if Portland goes on forever, we have this uh, poll uh, by the uh, leading pollster in Oregon showing that something like 60 to 65% of the, of, of, of Oregonians, uh, don't like the, uh, call the 
call the events in Portland riots rather than protests. They don't like them. They want them to stop. This is in, you know, one of the most uh, rock-ribbed, you know, sort of liberal uh, communities in the country, a reliably democratically voting community. Um, and and the longer this goes on, uh, the more the mealy the mealy mouth stuff may look like it's politesse and like a form of uh, elevation to say I condemn all violence. This is not right, you know, that, like this. But uh, if we are where if we if if everything keeps going on this way and it's like October thirtieth, and there's another race riot in the United States two or three days before the election, and a city is set on fire. And Biden hasn't said anything to move the football in his direction. I don't know. I mean, the late breaking voter then has got to say, who's the guy here who's going to protect me from this? Well, and and it's worth noting that the re-education goal doesn't care at all who's president, right? They just need to capture the institutions. And actually the least important one is the presidency for them. It's much more important to capture the schools and the universities and the cultural institutions. That's actually how more, um, you get quite, you get quantitatively more people under your, under your ideological umbrella than I guess I shouldn't, that's now a triggering word for me with all the Antifa umbrella stuff. So I'll use a different word, but that's how you control more people than you do if you have someone who's, you know, kind of ignoring you in the White House and on on the left side of the spectrum. So I actually think in the in terms of the long game, uh, the re-education anti-racism types don't really even care. I mean, in fact, tr- having Trump in the office gives them a kind of rhetorical uh, foil that they probably appreciate. Right. Now, I will say this. So if the polling suggests, as it does, as the New York Times Battle State polls suggested this weekend that law and order is now a more important aspect of the election than the virus. That does give Biden an opportunity of the sort that Noah is talking about, meaning um, he is not like viewed as being against law and order, but it means that he needs to deal with the issue more authoritatively maybe than he has thus far. And if he can neutralize it against himself, then he probably kind of walks in. Because he's so far ahead on how to deal with the virus, and these are clearly going to be the two major issues. We already know that Trump has probably gotten all the benefit that he can get out of his positive numbers on the economy, which remain, you know, relatively higher than anything else uh, in relation to him. Um, But uh, again, I think it is really going to be difficult for the Biden people to see clearly through the smoke. Uh, that their own side is blowing. And we know on the right how hard it is to do, I mean, to be completely fair to them, it is very hard when there is a unanimity of opinion on your own side to break through that opinion to see things that might be really damaging to you. I mean, I'll give you an example of this. Last three weeks of 2018, of the election cycle of 2018, when Trump was hitting on those caravans, the caravans coming every day, and Fox had the caravans on TV every day, and there was the caravans and the caravans. And I, it was, there were moments when I'm like, well, I guess I'm wrong. I mean, I think this is kind of desperate, and it's really not going to work, but I'm probably wrong. I mean, they must know something. They know that this is working, because why would they be hammering it so much why is this so? And of course, it didn't work. It didn't work at all. It probably worked against them. 
Um, but you do get this sort of like when everybody on your side is talking about the same thing over and over and over again, it's very hard to clear your mind and say, eh, I don't know if I really accept that. It's like what happens when, you know, you go see a movie that everybody thinks is fantastic. You know, the piety, the book piety of the moment or the movie piety of the moment. You come in, you go, that was terrible. And then you like, you realize you're kind of scared to say it. Because people are going to start yelling at you if you say you didn't like Parasite. What do you mean you didn't like Parasite? <laughs> it was a, or you know, what do you mean you didn't like The Shape of Water? What are you crazy? So you're like, I, you know, it was really good, but I kind of, I don't know the plot. I, you know, it's I like, still what? don't understand The Shape of Water. I've seen it, and I, yeah, well, that's a okay. conversation but for I, another time. Right. <laughs> but, but I'm just saying it's really hard, and so in the Biden case, it's probably it's harder than than most because, of course, this plays into every orthodoxy and emotional piety and everything that people have been raised on for the last three generations, I would say. That's all, you know, uh, packed into this. Like I said, if I were the Biden people, and I'm not, I would watch, I would have watched football yesterday and gone, please stop, stop, stop. Like, let them just play the game. Like, you know, this is not helping me. This but is you not helping. Can't, you can't just play the game. You can't just show up. You have to actively. This yeah. is the. This is the. Uh, you know. This is why they're harassing just average people out for dinner in D.C. This weekend, there was a whole other group doing it again, and what they kept saying is, "Oh, stand up, join us, overcome your whiteness." There's a video of this. So that to me, that was so striking to me. Like you actually have to overcome your, the accident of birth by standing up and, and, you know, proclaiming that your whiteness somehow makes you complicit. That's the message that they are going to be hammering long after the moment that Biden puts his hand on a Bible and is inaugurated if he wins. So that's the part where I think you can't have football without the social justice stuff and you can't have music. You can't have baby books. I mean, one of the examples I give, Ibram Kendi has a baby book, a board book that's meant to start your kids on the anti-racism journey as, you know, newborns. It's every, it has to be pervasive because it's, it's re-education. It's not adding to the story. It's replacing it. So everyone, please go to commentarymagazine.com and read Christine Rosen's very important piece, You Will Be Reeducated, if you haven't been reeducated already. We're going to reeducate you about your reeducation. Uh, and as I said, this is the lead of our October issue, which we are closing tomorrow. has a lot of great stuff in it. We'll be talking about it uh, during the week. Um, for Noah, Abe, and Christine, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>